For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. Down in Florida and in Texas, SpaceX is hard at work prototyping their Starship launch system, a cutting-edge space architecture that could one day change everything about the launch industry and put really large payloads on the surface of Mars. But while the company is moving fast and breaking things in their test facility, there's also work happening elsewhere, in workshops and in labs, to understand the environments they're looking to fly into on the Red Planet. Now last month we got a glimpse into this process when a reporter uncovered an employee of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory making image requests from NASA's high-rise camera. The scientist was looking for high-res imagery of a special area on Mars. The place? Arcadia Planitia. And the title of his image request? SpaceX Starship Landing Site Candidates. So what's going on in Arcadia? Why is SpaceX so interested? To answer these questions, I went to someone who undoubtedly knows more about this place on Mars than almost anyone here on Earth, Dr. Allie Bramson. Allie has been studying Arcadia for years, and I asked her to come on the show and talk about the science happening there, what we know, what we don't know, and what's next for scientists and SpaceX to pursue this as a place to send humans to explore. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to let you know about a special event coming up soon. This year, We Martians is going to be covering the International Astronautical Congress. IEC is the premier international space conference that travels around to different cities across the world. You'll remember it as the place where Elon Musk announced what would become Starship down in Mexico City back in 2016. Well, this year, it's in Washington, D.C., and we'll be heading over to meet up with my podcasting partner, Anthony Colangelo, from the Main Engine Cutoff Show. Now, besides all the great content we're going to be able to make, we're also, of course, going to be doing a meetup. So if you're in the Washington, D.C. area on Sunday, October 20th, you can join us for two events. First, at 10 a.m., we'll be meeting at the Udvar Hazy Center out at Dulles Airport to explore the Space Museum and check out Space Shuttle Discovery. All the listeners are welcome to come by and walk around with us as we check out the artifacts. Then, later that night, around 7 p.m., we'll head back to the city to the Dhaka Beer Garden for some food, drinks, and general revelry. The meetups are a lot of fun. I bring stickers, and we'll have some other fun goodies to give away too, so check out the details in the show notes, or head over to events.offnominal.space to learn more. I really hope to see you there. This sounds like it's going to be a big one. Uh, It's a really good location, and I can't wait to meet all the new listeners. All right, let's get to the interview. All right, so we're here with the Lunar and Planetary Labs, Dr. Allie Bramson. How are you doing today, Allie? Great. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I feel like I've been following you on Twitter for a really long time, and I think I've seen you speak a couple times at LPSC. It surprised me that it's taken this long for me to get you on the show. So welcome, finally. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been following you on Twitter, too, and see you in passing at conferences, and I think we have a lot of mutual acquaintances. So I was excited to come on the show. Definitely. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a cool place on Mars, Arcadia Planitia. 
But before we get into it, I want to just learn a little bit about you. So could you tell the listeners about your background, your education, and how did you stumble into Arcadia as a place to become an expert? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, I was born and bred to be a Wisconsin Badger. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for undergrad, and I was always interested in space. I was obsessed with it since I was like four years old. I was going around saying I was going to be an astronaut, signed all of my homeworks, Allie, future astronaut Bramson, until high school when I realized like, all right, I should maybe take a chill pill and like not <laughs> be as big of a nerd as I was, but I was obsessed with space. So heading into college, I knew I wanted to major in something that would allow me to go down that path. So I majored in physics and astrophysics uh, and did a minor in computer science. And I think the biggest thing for me was getting involved in undergraduate research really early. So I got to work on a lot of different scientific projects and see what it meant to be a scientist and do research. And I worked on everything from looking at how metal nanoparticles break down in the environment to galaxy groups, and then um, did a couple summer research projects uh, at Arecibo Observatory, looking at uh, pointing Arecibo at the sky and looking at uh, asteroids and modeling their shapes and where they are. Uh, and then I did a summer at the SETI Institute as well out in California looking for new lava flows on Jupiter's moon Io. And so I joke that I've sort of spanned over 30 orders of magnitude <laughs> in terms of the scale of the universe, looking at everything from nanoparticles to galaxy clusters. And eventually, like I realized planets were sort of my Goldilocks zone of being this like perfect scale that really just captured my interest. And I was just so excited at the idea of trying to explain why the planets are the way that they are and learning that I could work with NASA spacecraft data as like a job just blew my mind. I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so yeah, I applied to grad schools and some of my mentors in those planetary uh, uh, research projects over the summer, uh, they referred me to the Lunar and Planetary Lab at the University of Arizona. They're like, this would really be a perfect program for you. It's like all planets all the time. It's very unique in that it's a department of planetary science. It's not combined with astronomy or physics. It's its, its own thing. Um, and so, so yeah, I got in and and came to LPL for grad school and yeah, <laughs> got to achieve all my hopes and dreams. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty diverse background for sure. I mean, that's, do you find that that's useful to have all those perspectives when you're, when you're focusing in on, on, you know, a planet? Yeah, I think planetary science is so cool because it's very interdisciplinary and it's really at this crossroads between like I have this physics and astrophysics background, but then I study the surfaces of planets, which is more geology. But then I use data from spacecraft, which are, uses a lot of engineering and planetary science also involves chemistry and biology, especially if you're looking at astrobiology. And uh, it's just this like mishmash of every type of, of field. And that's what makes planetary science so cool. And so I think I was drawn to that interdisciplinary nature of it, especially having done so many different types of research in undergrad. That's awesome. That's uh, yeah, that's great to hear. I, I totally agree with you. Planetary science is just such a cool middle ground for, for everything. It's like just like you said, Goldilocks is the perfect way to describe it for me too. Cause it's like, it's far enough into space for me that it feels like space, but it's not some distant place that we can ever, ever get to or touch. Right. So 
yeah, it feels so tangible. Yeah. And like, given how much I was obsessed with being an astronaut going into space, like I feel like I realized it was studying space that I was interested in. But like through robots, we get to basically be at these places. Totally. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so how did you uh, come to study Arcadia? Um, so yeah, I knew I wanted to go to grad school for planetary science. At that point, I knew I wanted to study surface processes. I was really interested in what's going on on the surfaces of planets, and I wanted to work with spacecraft data. Um, and But from there, I, I wasn't really sure exactly what. And so I got into LPL. Uh, I wanted to work with Dr. Shane Byrne, who was my PhD advisor. And on my first day, he just sort of laid out a range of project ideas that he had for potential student projects. Um, and he mentioned this project of, well, there's like a weird crater in this area of, um, of Mars. And there's also, it might involve working with radar data, but also camera data. And, um, I was like, I want that one. I want to work with multiple different types of data sets. Uh, I was really intrigued to work with radar data. I was excited at the idea that there was something on the surface that was confusing and we wanted to try to explain it. Um, and so it felt like a tangible project and one that sort of just interests me in terms of skill sets that I would gain and, and topic. Hmm, that's awesome. Okay, well then let's let's learn about this place. So, um, I mean, the, the big reason we're bringing it up is because uh, we we recently learned um, some new information about SpaceX and their they're uh, they're exploring this area. It looks like based on the the high rise images that they're they're pulling down. Um, I think there was something like eight of these images and six or seven of them were, were in this Arcadia Planitia area. It, for someone who's never looked at a map of Mars, like, you know, where is this place? How big is it? Um, what's the, the elevator pitch for Arcadia? Yeah. So Arcadia is this really big flat area in the Northern hemisphere of Mars. Uh, it has been lovingly termed sometimes the Kansas of Mars. It's just <laughs> wide and flat, <laughs> chilling. Uh, it's in between a couple volcanic provinces. So it's sort of uh, in between Olympus Mons and Elysium, which are two of the big sort of volcano areas uh, of Mars. Uh, but it's this vast flat area about the size of like the Southwest United States. Um, and it's at latitudes really similar to the United States as well. So what we call the mid latitudes, it's not at the equator, it's not at the poles, it's sort of in the mid latitudes, sort of 30 to 60 ish degrees. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice and basic. So if, if we were, if we were flying over it, like what, what kinds of things would we see? Is it pretty featureless or is there things that we can actually observe on the surface? Yeah. So in general, it's like, it's this flat dusty area. It was honestly really easy to get data for my PhD project because no one was looking at Arcadia. No one was wanting data going over this area because they were just like, it's flat. It's boring. Why would you be <laughs> studying there? Um, so, you, you know, you'd see some craters, um, the, the area in terms of like geologic mapping has actually shown that there's like lava flows in the area. We know, you know, because there's those big volcanic provinces nearby, um, the area sort of formed from, from big lava flows, maybe two or 3 billion years ago. Um, and since then the area, it seems like has gotten reshaped a lot, especially like at the surface by periglacial processes and, and ice related, uh, processes. So at this point, like the, if you 
flew over there, you probably couldn't see it, but at the fine scale, there's really cool things going on at the surface, which is why the high-rise camera is so great because it has such nice resolution mm-hmm. to be able to see these fine scale things that are going on. Even though it's flat, you see all this like polygonal terrain and sometimes what's called brain terrain just because of like the weaving weird patterns in the surface sort of looks like a brain sometimes. Um, <laughs> and and, and you see that it's more continuous up at the higher latitudes, but as you get down towards like 40 or 35 degrees latitude, it's more discontinuous um, or choppy. Um, and that is a signature of when you've got uh, ice processes, because as you get closer to the equator, it's warmer and you've got more sublimation and stuff breaking up that ice, whereas at higher latitudes, it's colder, it's more continuous, it's still there. Hmm. Yeah, I was talking with um, a listener about this and and they were kind of saying that they, they wish that there was a rover somewhere in Arcadia so that they could see more information. And then someone else said, well, it'd be really boring. The rover wouldn't do anything because you just get the same flow and over again. But I, I kind of wonder sometimes that if, if we're now, I'm just, I'm off on a tangent here, but I'm, I'm postulating, you know, I wonder how many of these places are really fascinating on, on Mars or even any other planets that we think is boring and flat from all the way over here, but have a whole bunch of really cool stuff happening. If you really could get down into the dirt, you know? Something, oh, yeah. something I think about a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's something that, you know, ending up <laughs> studying Arcadia Planitia ex- extensively uh, has made me appreciate, again, like, trying to get data. They're like, okay, you can have all the images you want, because why are you studying that area? And now it's like this huge, it's so cool to just like see a lot of talk about Arcadia Planitia. And yeah, it's fun to see this flat, dusty area getting so much attention. <laughs> um, you mentioned a word, uh, paraglacial. Could you help listeners understand that what that means yeah so like basically areas surrounding glaciers or ice sheets and sort of the ice and freezing and thawing processes that are associated with that that's what i mean by paraglacial we have that on earth uh, there's a few places that are like that that we can use as analogs i think right yeah yeah and like the canadian arctic um there's a lot of paraglacial processes up there and you can see the similar sort of uh, polygonal terrain where you get these cracks in the surface when you've got this like cyclic freeze thaw process going on. Um, so yeah, there, there's many analogs to some of these terrains, uh, on earth. Sure. Cool. Um, so you've done quite a bit of work kind of characterizing what, you know, what looks like subsurface ice in Arcadia Planitia. Um, I think you had a, a pretty big paper on it. Can you talk broadly about sort of how much ice did you find there? What and what sort of characteristics do we know about this sort of layer beneath the ground? So, so I, I mentioned earlier, there's this weird looking crater that we were trying to explain. That was sort of the initial topic to get me going at this project. It's like, there's this crater, like what's going on there? Um, and what is unique about this crater, which uh, we call terraced craters, is that Craters are supposed to be, well, not supposed to be, but (laughs) they are usually these bowl, just simple bowl shapes, especially small craters. Um, And this crater happened to have these like flat terrace levels in the middle of its wall. And so I was like, well, you know, what caused that? One initial sort of hypothesis was like, maybe there was like a lucky double impact into the same exact place (laughs) and that's what's causing it to essentially look like this like double impact structure um but you can also get that sort of structure 
when you have layers in the subsurface. And so if you have a weaker layer over a stronger layer, and you've got that impact happening, that shock wave from the energy of the, the impact, it can push out material more easily in a weaker layer than it can a stronger layer. And so you end up with the crater essentially being bigger in that weaker layer and smaller in the stronger layer. And you get a terrace sort of at that interface between the two layers. And so it can indicate that there's something funky going on on the subsurface. You've got these layers of different sort of strengths. Um, and so I went and looked across Arcadia Planitia uh, and found like dozens more of these types of craters, even maybe over a hundred of them. And so that suggested, okay, there's something going on in the subsurface here that's causing this. This is not just like a double lucky <laughs> impact in the same exact area. Like these things are all over times, the yeah. place. <laughs> yeah, like there's something going on here. There's something in the subsurface. And then I looked in the radar data as well from the Sherrod uh, shallow radar instrument, uh, which is on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, like the high-rise and CTX cameras, and uh, saw that there's this subsurface reflector that appears. So with radar, you shoot out your radar beam, and then the signal reflects back when you've got sort of a contrast in, in material properties. So you get a reflection back at the surface where you've got the interface between like the atmosphere and the, the surface. <laughs> uh, but then also in the subsurface, there was something that was causing that signal to bounce off of an interface and come back to the spacecraft. And so we saw this widespread subsurface layer in the radar data as well and so that's where like okay <laughs> there's definitely subsurface layering here uh, and the where the terrace craters were and where the this radar layer was it covered this huge area most of Arcadia Planitia it's like the size of California and Texas combined yikes <laughs> yeah so so the layering is very widespread across most of the area um, the layering so with the high-rise camera on MRO, we can take stereo data. So you point the spacecraft at these two different angles. So like our eyes see in 3D by having two eyes looking at something from slightly different angles, you can put together a 3D image. We do the same thing with the high-rise camera. So we can take two separate images at slightly different angles and then make these like 3D digital terrain models, as they're called. Um, and that can help you make three-dimensional measurements and so the terraces in these craters are on the orders of, of tens of meters deep down to sometimes like 50 meters deep. And so, yeah, there's these like big, thick layers uh, across the region um, that adds up to like, like tens of thousands of cubic kilometers. Hmm. Okay. So the, the, one of the layers itself then is, is this ice layer or this water layer then? So that's what we think. That's what you think, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's there's actually multiple uh, radar reflections across Arcadia. There's a, a deeper one as well um, that's due to the lava flows that sort of coat the area. Um, but then we think that the, the shallower radar interface might be due to a boundary between an ice layer and those underlying lava flows. That would be a big contrast in material properties. Um, to cause that reflection. It would be a big contrast in the strength to form those terrace craters. And so we, we uh, made some dielectric constant measurements uh, where, so with the, the craters, we have sort of the thickness of, an estimate of thickness of layers. 
And then with the radar, what you can measure is the time that it takes for that signal to go down and bounce back to the, the spacecraft. So we have a measure of time that it takes for that radar wave to move through the material. We have an estimate of the thickness of the material. And so we can put those together by having these two independent measures of subsurface layering to estimate the speed that the radar wave is moving through that material. And so um, where you have, like, if you're driving a car and you know that you went 40 miles in an hour, you say your average speed was like 40 miles per hour. So that's what we did um, essentially with these terrace craters and the radars. Okay, this is the speed that that radar wave is propagating at. And how much that has been slowed down compared to the speed of light tells us something about the composition. Okay. So that's a long-winded way of saying that uh, we measured then this property that tells us something about the composition because the composition, different compositions will slow down that radar wave a different amount. It essentially can go through the atmosphere at the speed of light, but different materials like rocks will slow down that radar wave a lot. Uh, ice slows it down a bit. And... Uh, we found that the properties were consistent with something that was just not super rocky basalt, but it had to have um, probably some large fraction of ice mixed in. Okay. So because you, you have a visual confirmation of the, the, the depth of the layers through these terrace craters, that's what gives you the extra context to be able to determine that. Yeah. Yeah. And those, those composition measurements, um, those radar wave, uh, propagation velocity measurements, they they do lead to multiple solutions. So, you know, do you have something with a lot of porosity? Do you have like a very fluffy rock? <laughs> or do you have something that's very ice rich? Um, you know, we can't really distinguish those two with just those, what we call dielectric constant. The fact that there's also, <laughs> there's brand new impacts that we have imaged where we have a, a picture and there's no crater there. We take another image a couple of months later, and all of a sudden there's a brand new crater there. And it exposes this bright white water ice. And so we know that there's at least some water ice for sure in the subsurface. And so that's where, so the, the our best guess at explaining these sort of lower dielectric constants is that there's a large fraction of ice there. And that it can't just be basaltic lava flows. I'm having flashbacks to an interview I did a few years ago with uh, Cassie Sturman, who works on this <laughs> stuff a lot. And so, yeah. and I'm just trying. I'm learning, relearning all this dielectric content stuff. It's it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, she did a really similar study for Utopia Planitia and came to a similar conclusion. So our our stuff uh, goes very nicely together. <laughs> so there's just ice everywhere. Then I guess that's the lesson. Um, so I think I read somewhere and maybe I'm way out to lunch here, but were there any of these terrace craters that also had CO2 ice, um, inside of them as well? Nope. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. These latitudes, it's too warm warm. for carbon dioxide ice to be stable. So you might get some seasonal frost, uh, like in the winter, you might get some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere condensing out. No, a very thin layer of, of surface frost, and then it's gone by the spring. But that may also contribute to some of the erosion of the craters and stuff too, I would assume. Uh, possibly. Yeah. But in terms of like excavating, you know, meters, tens of meters, 
it's it's, a, it's carbon dioxide like seasonal frost isn't going to contribute to that so um spacex is probably looking at this kind of area because they they want to you know there's this grand idea of being able to leverage water on mars to make fuel and all sorts of fun things like that um I'm sure that the ISRU fans are really excited about this idea, but I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about how accessible this stuff really is. Like, um, it, it, is it in a place where you feel like you could you could dig down, or is it more you'd have to ac- access it through these terrace craters? What's sort of your scientific perspective on on how accessible this is? Yeah, I think in the grand scheme of places on Mars to go for accessible ice. I think it's the best place that's not at the poles. (laughs) The poles, I mean, you've got water ice right up like to the surface. Um, That would be very accessible, but you're also at the poles. So it's super cold. You've got month long winter night where anything that's solar powered, is going to hate its life. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, so basically, you know, all the, all this talk about sending humans one day to Mars, it's focusing on, how do we get as equatorward as possible and have resources available to us? Cause the equator is going to be friendlier in terms of just sunlight and temperatures. Um, and so that's where I think Arcadia Planitia of possibly, uh, accessible ice at these nonpolar latitudes. I think Arcadia is our best bet. There is a lot of different lines of evidence that are converging towards suggesting that there's a lot of ice there. Um, but there's a lot of stuff we don't know about it. And that's, for me as a scientist, what makes it really exciting is trying to find other ways to study the ice and figure out what is going on in this region. Um, like I said, we we have some measurements from like the radar and terrace craters that suggest there might be quite a bit of ice in the subsurface. Um, but that doesn't necessarily tell us because of sort of those degeneracies in calculating the composition from those measurements, like, oh, does that just mean there's a lot of porosity in the dust? Is there a lot of ice? What's going on? And so, yeah, we're, we're not quite sure yet. Um, we're trying to figure out, like, how much dust is mixed in. And, like, that obviously affects how usable it is. But also, are there perchlorates mixed in, which are uh, toxic and <laughs> not friendly to humans who might want to drink the ice? Like, it's one thing to sieve out dust but it's another thing to try to <laughs> not drink perchlorate water um but then also what's going on on the surface we think that because the area is pretty flat and dusty that it would be easier to access than at some other places so we know that there's debris covered glaciers on mars as well where there's probably even pure ice so like i said I, we think that there's probably some dust mixed in to this ice there might be pure ice uh, at like these old remnant glaciers, but they might have like 20 meters of super bouldery, really difficult debris cover on top that you would have to dig through. And personally, if I'm going there, I would rather like be able to just like scoop away a top <laughs> dusty layer and reach ice than have to and have it be less pure than uh, have to go through like 20 meters of boulders. But that's where for the ISRU community, it's really going to come down to what technology is capable of and which of those things is easier. Is it easier to purify the water? Is it easier to dig deeper? And and that's where 
you know, putting better constraints on the purity of the ice and also the depth, like where is that top of the ice uh, will be really, really important uh, for getting at these questions. So with the radar that we currently have at Mars Sherrod, uh, it has a resolution of like 10 meters or so. We can't really see anything closer to the surface than about 10 meters uh, or even more. So we saw the bottom of the ice but we haven't actually seen the top of the ice right. yet. Um, and that's where a higher frequency radar uh, could really help with that, trying to find, yeah, where does the ice start? Um, but that's where we've got these brand new ice exposing impacts. And those really are what like seal the deal, <laughs> I think, for a lot of us. is like we can see with our eyes there is 100%. We know there is pure ice within a meter of the surface, at least in these locations. And there's... Uh, a handful of these across uh, Arcadia Planitia where these craters have sort of made these holes for us uh, <laughs> and showed us that there is pure ice within a meter, at least in some locations. And so, and then it's also in the Northern part of Arcadia Planitia. Uh, I was on a paper uh, that Colin Dundas was first author on last year, uh, where we found these big cliffs uh, in Northern Arcadia that ex- essentially expose like a hundred meters of like almost pure ice. And so we've got now two lines of this visual confirmation that we know that there's pure ice that goes close to the surface. Um, And so we think that it's across the whole area, given all these other lines of evidence for layering in the subsurface. Um, But yeah, that was uh, the long way of just saying like, there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, but so far, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that Arcadia would probably be the most accessible place to access a large reservoir uh, of ice. Sure. And and you mentioned the higher frequency radar. Would that be your preference and sort of the next thing? If you could pick, you know, any instrument to send there, is that sort of what you'd be you'd be hopeful for? Yeah. Yeah. So I was actually um, I'm on a mission proposal that we just submitted to NASA's discovery program. Um proposing just this to send a high frequency radar that would have a resolution where it would look at the upper tens of meters at like one meter or less resolution. So we could try to find that top of the ice table um, and better characterize that really near subsurface. Oh, that, so fingers crossed. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm all in on that one for sure. Yay. <laughs> um, I wanted to just ask you as we're closing up here, uh, you know, the, the SpaceX Starship has the potential to send a lot of mass to Mars. Um, what are your thoughts on that as, from a scientific perspective? You know, like, are, are you guys as a community getting excited about that potential? Is it still pretty skeptical? Where, where are you at in terms of anticipating this as having an impact on your work? I think there's a, there's a bit of both um, <laughs> in terms of like being excited, being skeptical. It's like, Sort of, if they can pull this off, if SpaceX can get uh, Starship there and land on the surface and have the capability of sending large amounts of mass to the surface of another planet, then that could be huge for changing what our constraints are and what instruments that we can put to scientifically learn about a planet. So I think it could potentially be really exciting. Uh, And also just they're working on the capabilities of relaunching back to earth and so not only is that cool from a a human exploration point of view but also the idea of being able to return samples back and i think yeah if they pull it off and 
can get that amount of mass and that capability to come back, like that would just change, uh, change a lot for, for science and what we're capable of doing in terms of planetary exploration. I feel like the, the, the difference in mass is such like a dramatic contrast. Like it's almost one of those things where we don't even really understand what kind of impact it would be. Cause we've been working under, you know, these constraints of, of tiny, tiny, very like you know, power conserving instruments for so long that I think when you take those, those constraints off, it must just be like, woo, it must be like, just kind of like wild <laughs> and crazy and the ideas you can come up with. But yeah. 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 And I mean, for me personally, given a lot of my research is focused on understanding ice in Arcadia Planitia and in the mid latitudes of Mars, like I would love for them to go there and basically, you know, bring an instrument that starts digging and can tell us and ground truth what is happening there and sort of reconcile all of these things that we've been trying to figure out from orbital spacecraft and yeah yeah it'd be awesome to know what's actually there <laughs> maybe we should just land a fridge and then take a big big chunk of ice and bring it back for you to look at firsthand <laughs> oh i yeah i would love that sign me up <laughs> awesome uh so uh we're wrapping up here um this has been awesome, Allie. This is really cool information. Uh, I really thank you for coming on to share all this. I'll, I'll put some links to your papers in the show notes if the listeners want to take a look at them. But is there anything anywhere else on the internet you would uh, direct listeners to go if they wanted to learn more about you or Arcadia or who knows, ICE, whatever, <laughs> wherever you wanted to share? Sure. Um, well, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Allie Bramson. Uh, the SWIM Project, we also formed a Twitter handler handle uh, so people can follow for updates on when products come out or if we find you know some fun article that's related to Mars ice sometimes we'll post that on there too um, and so that handle is at red planet swim um, and then you can also check out the swim website if you're interested that has a little bit of information about the team as well as uh, how we're using the different types of data uh, to make these ice consistency maps. And as I mentioned earlier, that website is swim.psi.edu. So I would recommend checking those out if you're interested in Mars Ice. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Great. Allie, thanks so much for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's it for this week, Martians. Now, Allie wanted me to add one more thing to the episode before we go, though. In the fall of 2020, Allie will be starting a new career at Purdue University in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences, and she wants to put the word out to prospective students. I know that there are a few of you out there who are pursuing your own career in planetary science, so if you want to check out an up-and-coming planetary school and work with Allie, make sure you reach out. We'll put all the links in the show notes for you to find. If you've got questions or thoughts on the episode, I'd love to hear them. Feel free to email me at info at wemartians.com or reach out to us on Twitter at we underscore Martians. And if you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's as cheap as a buck a month and you get tons of bonus content. For this episode's bonus content, I chatted with Allie about the SWIM project, a collaborative effort to map all of Mars water to support eventual human exploration there. It's really cool and you should definitely check it out. If you want to hear it, go to patreon.com slash wemartians or click the link in the show notes. But if that's not your thing, let us know how you feel on Apple Podcasts with a rating and a review. All right, we'll see you next time and at Aries Martians.